The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to A Guided Life Podcast, where we talk about all things spirit and life. I'm your host, Laura West. Follow me on Facebook at GuidedWest11, on Instagram at GuidedWest, and on Twitter at LauraWest111. I also have a website at www.laurawest.net where you can download a free guide on how to meet your own spirit guides. My book, Guided, is available on Amazon and it's about soul teams, intuition, mediumship, and spiritual tools such as oracle and tarot cards, crystals, pendulums, and so much more. My guest today is Krishnanand. Krishnanand is a five-time award-winning author, three-time documented medical miracle, and two-time near-death experiencer. He has spent his lifetime immersed in spiritual studies and practices, regularly giving workshops and keynote speeches on topics that range from near-death experience to paths of yoga, the occult, tarot, and Kabbalah, just to name a few. Hello, Krishnanan. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I checked out your website. Very impressive resume. But all of this sort of started with an experience that was pretty traumatic, pretty tragic. Did you want to take us back to that point in your life that brought us to where we're sitting here. Which one? I'm 57 in a month, and I've had a supernatural string of pearls, crown of thorns kind of life experiences. So, yes, but I wouldn't say it started because, as you mentioned, I spent my life studying and involved in practicing spiritual modalities and paths throughout my entire life. I started in spiritual paths when I was very young as a child. And so the NDE experience didn't really start anything for me. It raised it to a different octave. Ah. The unusual thing is that as... One of the directors of the Seattle Alliance, International Association of Near-Death Studies, at the convention that they had when he met me, his name was Greg. I was still kind of in this fog because my NDE was still going on full-blown. I went on very strongly for four years. He was really kind of blown away by my life experience and my mystical studies and my proficiency in mystical and spiritual paths. And I had no idea why my NDE was going on. I don't know what was happening. And his theory was that... I think that maybe you had such an intense NDE and still having one and you retained so much because of your prior mystical experience and training. And that ringed a bell. That sounded true. And I was like, oh, my God, the bells went on. The, the lights went on. You know, I was like, that, that makes a lot of sense. So it all started to cut fold in right there. Yeah, it didn't start with the NDE, but it definitely has shifted gears and raised it to different octaves. Got it. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. So... What do you mean by having an NDE for four years? Just like heightened senses? What does that mean? May I tell you about the event itself? Please. It's pretty jaw-dropping. So I'm a private practice counselor in my, in my private office at that time. And I started from the ground up from nothing. And I was becoming successful and helped a lot of people. And I was doing what I felt was heartfelt work, saving people and rescuing people from disorders and dysfunction. It was pioneering new strategies. Occasionally, I rode my motorcycle to work. It's a very unusual Italian motor scooter that's called a, an MP3. It's very unusual. I wrote it that day to the office, and three clients canceled that day. That's unusual. One or two here and there, okay. If one or two had canceled, we would stay in the office. But three clients canceled back-to-back, and I can't reschedule back-to-back, and suddenly I had like five hours to kill. 
and I had nothing with me in the office because I was back to back all day with clients. Mm. So I decided to get on my motorbike and ride up the street to the clinic to get a physical that I was overdue for. Seven years in that office, Laura, seven years, and not once did I ever, when I exited there, turn right instead of left. The left turn was easy side streets into town. The right turn was a big boulevard with some traffic signals and some other traffic and things. Never in seven years I'd ever turn right, but that day, I didn't. I never will know why. It's a mystery to me. About a half mile later, I stopped at a stoplight to do my left turn on the Lions Avenue in Santa Clarita in Los Angeles, and... The green arrow turned left just for me. I was the only guy in the lane. And as I eased out three miles an hour, as we do to make a left turn, eased out. My guy went through the light in a full-size SUV, hit me in the face, killing me instantly. Was dead on the street, mangled, bloody, and killed. Now, on the corner is a tire shop. And in front of this tire shop was a pastor on the cell phone. He's there getting tires on his daughter's car. I didn't learn this for years later. How I learned about it is another far story. He was the first guy on the scene. He shouldn't have been there that day. His daughter convinced him to take her down there to get some tires on her car. He saw the accident, ran over there, and pulled me from the wreck. I'm gonna get a little emotional, hard to relive. And I don't get emotional because of what I went through, Laura. What I get emotional about is every time I think about parts of the story that affected other people in a terrifying way, my empathy, that affects me greatly. This man pulled me from the wreck and I was bleeding from my eyes, my nose, my mouth, and my ears, and I was dead. And he began to read my last rites. On the other corner were two paramedics getting lunch at the front of a fast-through drive-through to Jack in the Box. Had they been in the back of that line, I wouldn't be here. Had they wanted tacos instead of burgers that day, I wouldn't be here. So we have already a collection of small miracles taking place. His pastor of all people, he felt God put him there at that time for a reason. The moment he saw it, he thought, I'm here for a reason. Paramedics, obviously, they saw it. They were there in seconds. I'm dead, by the way. We'll get to the NDE part, like where I went, the other side and all that in a moment. First, let's do the medical clinical thing. So the paramedics brought my body back to life. Now, important that I'm saying brought my body back to life because that's all that was there right at that moment was my body. And I was in a stage three Glasgow coma. It's the most severe coma that an individual can experience. It's synonymous with death. Literally, EMTs, when somebody's in the stage three Glasgow, they shrug their shoulders and say, it's up to God now. That's actually what they say. My son is an EMT. He's a firefighter now. And when he learned about it, he, he called me several months ago. He's like, dad, oh my God. So I stayed in a coma for nine days and I woke up on my birthday. If it doesn't get any more bizarre, so we got a pastor on one corner, paramedics on the other. This is all documented. I'm in a stage three Glasgow coma and I wake up nine days later from a coma on my birthday. Now, I don't know how mystical people here are on that watch your show. But nine is a very powerful numerological number. It's an ending cycle. It's also a beginning cycle. As a numerologist myself, prior to and now, nine was very significant. There's a reason for all of this. Now, what I'm often asked is, okay, so that's what happened physically in the material world, but what happened spiritually? What happened with the NDE, the death experience? I can tell you this. I did not have an OBE, out-of-body experience. I did not hover around and see the scene displaying before me like many people report. I was hit in the face by a truck, killed instantly, and I bolted the F out of there. I didn't need to be there. I didn't want to be there. And so I catapulted to the other side, to a place that I now call the portal. I didn't know what it was. It was a spaceless, timeless dimension of just existence. My chitta, my consciousness was there and aware. My soul was in my body because your soul animates your body. 
my spirit, my chitta, my consciousness was in this peaceful, dimensionless, spaceless, timeless dimension of just existence. And it was loving, and it was all the many things that we hear about. And I was in the presence of intelligence and care and comfort. And I also put it, they were comforting. And so that's the day itself. <laughs> You're right. That is jaw-dropping. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. It's yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot, but gosh, I like you. I mean, I can appreciate the synchronicities. I can appreciate how everything is so interconnected and interwoven to put people where they were meant to be, to have all those events occur. Gosh, it just blows your mind how it's for my human brain so complex. You know, these three clients canceled. Well, what made them cancel? Probably something in their extended life That's that right. ultimately all these things occurred to lead you to that moment. That moment. It's incredible to look at it that way. And since then, Laura, I can tell you that obviously the first time, even when I'm in the hospital, I'm trying to learn how to walk and talk, what I'm going to get to in a minute. When people are hearing a little bit of the story, they're saying, oh my God, you were saved for a real purpose. Like you have some major function, maybe major reason to, to be alive from all this and all these miracles that have occurred to make this happen. It's clearly a lot of things went out of their way. And of course, the smart ass in me, I'm thinking like, well, you know, how about a paramedic on the corner, pass on another? How about making my birthday, 90, come up? How about just making the truck miss me in the first place? How, that would have been nice. You know, if you're going to make miracles, you missed one. <laughs> I would have liked to have get the truck in the first place. But since then, of course, over time, and again, I'm trying to contain some emotions because it's just gratitude. I don't know why I've had such a supernatural life since I was born. And clearly these events, it eventually became apparent to me that I had to write the book. I had to tell the story, which I didn't for years. I didn't want nothing to do with it. I just wanted to get beyond it. Mm. And you could say that there was a spiritual directive. And what the spiritual directive was, what I call Akashic agents, instead of guardian angels, Akashic agents, the agents that administer on the other side in the Akashic space. And as I struggled with telling this story and how outrageous and unreal it was and how nobody would ever possibly believe all these miracles that were happening at once, and that's just the surface layer. Okay, it goes on and on and on. And they were saying to me at some point, shut up, tell the story. This story doesn't belong to you. This story isn't even about you. And I never thought it was. This story was engineered and composed by celestial forces beyond you. And you are the scribe. Shut up and tell the story. So I can, all I can do, all I can do is tell you what it was. A pastor on one corner, paramedics on the other. And so they engineered and constructed all these events. And I suspect... It can only be, as people hear it, it provides some of the most documented evidence of spiritual intervention that you've ever heard. Wow. It becomes undeniable. So you said that after you were killed, yes, you found yourself in this space. Yes. Do you remember that space and any other interactions that you may have had there? Now, it took a while because understand this. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit. So the clinical end, when I wake from the coma on my birthday, I don't know who I am. I don't know my name. I don't have amnesia, Laura. I'm saying my memory and identity was deleted. I did not know how to walk. And I'm not saying that I was injured because I really wasn't too injured, surprisingly. I'm saying that it's like I never learned. Everything that I was was deleted like a hard drive, deleted from my identity. My identity was wiped clean. So I didn't know anything. So it took a while. Meanwhile, as I'm in a hospital trying to figure out who this 
wife person is that the nurse is introducing me to. And this, here's your son. I'm like, what's a son? And I couldn't even say what's a son because I couldn't speak yet. I had to learn how to speak. I'm trying to figure all this out. And I'm half the time when I'm awake in the world, I'm only partially awake in the world. And whenever I'm asleep at that time, I'm completely on the other side. So the moment I become unconscious here, I existed fully in the other side, full awareness. And I didn't want to leave because it was peaceful. It was comforting. And it made sense there. Earth life for me was crap. I was in a hospital bed looking at doomsday, looking at nothing but tragedy. I mean, I didn't want to be there. And so being on the other side, what I now call the portal, was beauty and peace and comfort. So it was kind of a nice place to be. So yes, the experience within this dimension, and we all go there between our lives, every lifetime, we all go there. And I'm not special in that regard. What we experience is unique to each individual based on who and what we are and where we've been in this lifetime and other lifetimes too. And it wasn't as if I was curious about something and was told and given knowledge and insights. It was like instant upload. I didn't ask anything. It was kind of instant. You want to know things and you get to know things. Now, it's limited because you don't become omniscient. You get to learn what you're qualified to learn. And so if you are still in first grade learning spirituality in an elementary way, then that's what you're going to get, right? I mean, they don't give you trigonometry when you're still in the beginning stages. So it was explained to me, and I'm using air quotes because explained is a very loose term here because it was more uploaded. It was explained to me that I was given insights and truths and awareness and knowledge that I was primed for, that I could have access to because of my prior training experience. That makes sense. And it was a very direct, intimate connection with these Akashic agents. And again, I say that lovingly. They're just love. They just care about you. And they have nothing but your best interest at heart. That's it. That's all they function for. What do these Akashic agents look like? I did not have any physical senses, any visual. And I was curious. Again, there's the air quotes. It's not like I asked, but what I learned throughout my memory coming back of those times there, which still goes on, I can visit there regularly, and I, I always have, is that they will take any form or shape that suits you. If you're Christian, they may be apostles, they may be Jesus. If you're Muslim, they may be Muhammad. If you're Buddhist, they may be the Buddha, it may be sadhus. And so it takes whatever form that's comfortable for your understanding to be able to comfort you. So for me, I didn't need anything like that. I was already completely spiritual all my life, had no one shred of doubt of faith or acceptance or confidence in spiritual reality and divinity. I've been working with it all my life. So I wasn't confused at all. And so it was kind of inferred to me that you're not seeing white lights and all these kind of things. You can, but do you need it? And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm cool. Just chilling out here. Like, I don't really need any, don't go to any trouble. I'm good. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. So what's interesting about connecting with you and the fact that you had an NDE is a lot of the NDE is and again, near-death experience, that's what it stands for. A lot of NDEers whose stories I've listened to in other podcasts, etc., had either no faith or a very different faith prior to their experience. And then they come out of it and they're where you were before you had yours. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear somebody who was already very spiritual because I myself think about that. You can't help but think, what if that happened to me when you hear those stories? And my impression was, well, 
I'm already very spiritual. Maybe I don't need an experience like that. But apparently it can happen to anybody if it's meant to happen to them. <laughs> right. I can tell you, again, as we talk about how my event went on, it wasn't a brief near-death experience episode. It went on for years, four years intensely, where I was interacting with and partially existing on the other side more than I was here on the material side. Four years of that. And even after that, the next three years, which is just up to about two years ago, it was a little bit less there and a little more here. I was starting to adjust and balance it out. It's now continuing to be an ongoing event. And so when I was still in the throes of confusion, keep in mind, go back to the clinical area, which I didn't express to you. I had a DAI brain injury. It's a diffuse axonal injury. It's the most severe brain trauma known to science. So when I say my identity was deleted, because I had a DAI injury. So you hear TBI all the time in the news with athletes and all that. I had a DAI. It's the worst known to science. And only a handful of people ever come back for one. And 90% of the people with a DAI injury, if they wake up from their coma, 90% don't. Of the 10% that do, are institutionalized or dead by suicide within four years. So this is what I'm saying in my medical miracle is the chief of brain neurology is studying me and saying like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And here we are in year 10, and I'm not only not institutionalized, but I'm fully functioning, writing a book, and playing some tennis again. So I agree that I was a little bit bitter. I don't know if that's the right word. I had some bitter feelings. When I went to the NDE conference, I didn't even know what NDE was when this was happening. I never even heard the term. Spiritually, all my life, I never even heard the term. And how I came across this in Washington and how the person introduced it to me, again, is more the supernatural, like paramedics on the corner kind of thing. It's so surreal. And so as I'm meeting these NDE people at the conferences in Seattle and other places, I'm listening to those stories too. And I'm thinking, well, I know why you had to die. You had no faith, but why me? I understand why you had to wake up spiritually, but why am I going through this? Right? Well, I wasn't bitter or angry, but there was some angst. I was like, I'm going through some horrendous terrible, terrible, tragic stuff, losing everything. I mean, it's a tragic story. And yet I'm still soldiering on. And I'm like, okay, I understand you had to wake up spiritually, gave you the calling. But me, I was already living a full spiritual life. All it really does is it's interfered with mine. And so now the final three chapters of this book, my memoir and guide to spiritual awakening, one of them is called full circle, the full circle chapter as I'm writing the book, it's all making sense to me. It's all coming clear. I'm starting to understand why and how and what the purpose was. And I was exploited by spiritual forces. And I'm glad to be exploited by them because they wanted to scribe to put this down. And they gave me an unusual set of experiences. So now I see that what it was, my calling was an opportunity, is an opportunity to set things right. Nobody's NDE experience is wrong. There's a whole bunch of NDEers out there, by the way, that because they saw Jesus said, well, Jesus is right and everything else is wrong now. Whatever zealous they, they might have for their religion, this happens a lot. And yet there's universal truths in all of them. And so what I've always done with my life as a private counselor, an addiction specialist, and an innovator in behavioral things, and now this is I'm trying to show the integration, the synthesis, the combination of these things and these paths and these insights and see that they're all speaking of one single thing. Loving God and experiencing God's love for you. Real simple. And again, whatever version that takes, 
in the form of a biblical figure or a mystical figure or whatever, spirit guide or an angel, whatever else, whatever suits you, they're infinite and eternal. They can give you anything they want, whatever's going to work for you. And so what this book helps explore is the eternal truths that apply to all of us, no matter where your faith came from. What was that process like to finally start to write your book? Good question, Laura. Boy, you don't play easy, do you? <laughs> Understand that, as I said, this book is a lot of tragedy, okay? It was very dark and very terrifying. I mean, you understand that for four years, and even up to almost a year and a half ago, for the first four years, I would wake up and not know who I was. I would often not know where I was because I was existing in both dimensions at once, here in the world and there in the portal. And so the lines between my realities were so blurry, I could not keep track. And that's hard to function in a material world when you can't function like other people. And I could not do that. And yet I did. I built a house with brain trauma and stick in a different dimension because I didn't know what else to do. So I'm kind of functioning in both. Yeah. It was extremely challenging to exist with both. And I think that's ultimately, again, what this whole point is about. And as I started to write it, understand that, of course, early on, I'm thinking, well, this happened. I should write it. I'm already a writer. I was already an award-winning author. And so obviously I'm thinking I was called to do this because I'm a writer. They're recruiting me to do this. The Kasha games are recruiting me to do this because what I am, I didn't want to. It was too painful or I lost things that I loved so much, things that I was truly attached to. I wrote a few chapters way back in the first year or two and I set it aside and I just was still enduring it. I could not write it because it, I thought it was because it was just too painful. I was still going through it. Now I see it's because the story wasn't done yet. Mm. When I came here, I'm living now next to the spiritual ashram, my guru's divine home. That is when it all started to balance out and stabilize. And I started coming back into my own identity and all the memories and everything came up and started to purge out of me so I could see them objectively for the first time instead of just enduring it. And so as I'm writing it and witnessing it, just as you would when you're reading it, I'm learning about it the way you would when you're reading it. Like I'm learning it as it goes. Yes, indeed it was cathartic. But as you know, catharsis isn't just joyful. Catharsis is painful. It's purging and it's essential and it's healthy, but it's still painful. So it's very, very painful to write. But I got to tell you, having a complete, after all this work and a team of people helping and assisting me, putting our heart and soul into this, to have this book, it's becoming a tangible thing. It's now becoming a part of the physical manifestation. So all the pain that I went through... As we says, as it's Nietzsche said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Well, I was pretty strong before, and I've become even stronger now, I suppose. I don't know, but it needed to be told, and it was painful, very painful to write. The hardest thing I ever did was live through this, and the second hardest thing I've ever did is to write it all down and tell it. I'm an evocative writer. I'm what's called a creative nonfiction or creative narrative writer, and I win awards because... I express myself with a lot of passion and I feel I'm like a method actor that takes on the role that they're playing. I refer to myself as a method writer. When I'm writing something, I'm like reliving it right there in my head, in my heart, and it's painful. And sometimes I just don't want to do it, but I do it because it needs to be done. And I do this as a gift from my soul to everyone else. So what does it look like now when you connect with the Akashic agents? Again, it's not very visual, and I've never been a very visual person in my imagination. Some people are visual, some people are more conceptual. And so my imagination has always been more conceptual. 
I can tell you that the communication that I have, we all have our inner thoughts, our inner dialogues, our intuitions. There is a different brand. I can clearly tell the difference between when I'm receiving or having a thought that's inception in my mind that wasn't mine. It's theirs. It has their own brand. It has their own, I don't know how else to put it, it's their own brand. It's their own feeling. It's their own presence. And it's clearly not mine. Mine's physical, material, human, stupid. We're all stupid humans. I'm not enlightened. I'm a stupid human. And so <laughs> when those thoughts come in, they usually come in very clearly. There's like a dialogue. It's like when I wake up at three or four in the morning and these things are going on, it's like I'm joining a conversation that's been going on for a while. It's already in full swing and I'm just kind of like stepping in the room. And it's clear and it's sensible and it's just a feeling of clarity that I know exactly what to do. And what the result will be, I don't know. When they told me to move to Washington, when they told me to move here, when I was told to go back to Los Angeles, all these things, all these directives, and it's not just about location, writing this book, mine's not to question why, mine is but to do and die, which I did as Tennyson. I don't ever ask myself what the results will be or what's in it for me. I'm a spiritualist. I'm a servant of the Lord. Whatever they want, I want to do. And I hope it comes off for me too, because I'm a stupid human and I'm scared <laughs> like anybody else. It's true. <laughs> yeah, and that, but I, I sense that they now know that, oh, well, let's get Krishna to do it. He'll do it. He'll do anything. Oh, no. <laughs> like, hey, move somewhere. Let's have to write a book. He'll, he'll, do, he'll do it, you know, and he'll do a good job. So yeah. I'm game. I'll, I'll do the best I can. So, you know, whatever I'm told and asked to do. And so the communication. It used to be more beyond my control, you could say. I found the volume control, you could say. Mm. I've learned how to turn it down and turn it up. And when I was working feverishly on the publishing, printing, and proofing part and the editing part of the book, I had most of that turned way down because I could not interact with it. I had to really focus on the material world. But sometimes they rattle my chains and they say, well, I don't care what you think you need to focus on. You need to pay attention to us. And other times... When I'm more meditative, I spend two, three hours a day in meditation in a prayer hall, and I live in those spaces, and I live in that mindset most of the time, and then they have free rent, they have free access to me, and I'm, I don't know, they just communicate, and it's gentle, and it's nice, and it's not like a part of me, it's just gentle and comforting. I'm a stupid human. My mind is all dirty and spoiled for materiality. Their minds are just pure and clean and clear, so, you know, let them do all the thinking. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. So it sounds a lot to me like what we interpret intuition to be is similar to how you explained, you just know, or you just feel it, or you just go where you feel like you're being guided. That reminds me of the discussions that I have with people around the word intuition. So that would bring me to ask you how you would define intuition. That's a great question. Listen, before my NDE, as I used to give workshops on intuition and Kabbalah and mystical paths mm. and all that, I've been teaching it and, and learning it most of my life. And so I've always said that intuition is a combination of emotion logic and reason. My intuition is a subtle feeling, there's emotion of some type of notion or concept combined with, does it make sense? Is it logical? Does that seem real? Is that fantastic? Or is that magical? Or is that sensible? So my intuition is a combination of these things. And I found that as I work with people as a counselor, and as I work with people as a mystical teacher and trainer, I like to consider myself a mystical fitness trainer. Hmm. As I work with people with their mystical and spiritual fitness training, that many people's intuition is pure emotion. Don't trust that because that'll make you like buy the nice shiny car that you can't afford, right? You've got to combine that. You've got to link that together with your logic and reason. 
But the difference is my intuition has some levels of doubt because I'm a stupid human and I want to be sure and I've got to really contemplate, meditate and think and really do my research and homework before I buy that car, not just on a feeling. But the Akashic agents, it's a completely different feeling altogether. It ain't mine. It doesn't come from me. It's not from my source. It has nothing to do with my logic, nothing to do with my reason, nothing to do with my emotion. It's simply a thought like an inception put into my head and I'm given a directive. And all I ever do is say, okay, I don't ask what's going to happen or why should I? It doesn't even cross my mind. Whatever I feel that I'm directed to do, I know they have my best interest at heart or whatever, or their humanities or whatever it may be. So I just say, okay. So does everybody have... Akashic agents? Are these just the only Akashic agents that everyone can access? Or how does that work? Wow, you have some really insightful, good questions. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes and no. There is one pure, loving Godhead for all of us. And yet, it's individual for each one of us as well. My guru, my master, is a spiritual master to millions. And yet, it's very personal and intimate. And it's just like I'm the only one that belongs to them. And so the Akashic agents, while they may have several people and souls that they tend to look after, it never feels that way. It always feels like a very personal, singular, independent, individual, intimate relationship. The bottom line is you could say, what does it matter? Whether you're sharing them or whether they're personally yours, what does it matter? They're personally yours, whether they're also being shared. And so there's a saying in Sanatindarn Hinduism, when you get on the guru path and find spiritual enlightened masters, I'm not just talking about teachers. I'm talking about enlightened masters like the Buddha, like Shankaracharya, Chaitanya. I'm talking about enlightenment. I don't deal with anything less. And when I think of them, I will tear up. So pardon me because they overwhelm me. I belong only to my guru, only to my spiritual master. That's all I belong to. He belongs to everybody. I only belong to him. I can't belong to anybody else. So in that sense, the Akashic agents whether there's one or eight million of them, and this is explained in beautiful ways, I feel, in this book. There's a whole chapter that's devoted to the portal and Akashic Ages. There's a lot of stuff in there for, just for that. So we can understand that, is that they're extensions and expressions of the Godhead. So in a similar way, if I come home from work as a parent, as a father, when my son was small, like Mr. Rogers would come home in his tie and then he'd put on his cardigan sweater and relax and be friendly. So when I come home from work, I'm business dad. I'm, I'm, I'm do your homework dad. But after a while, when I ease in, when I settle down and the dishes are put away and my son's on his homework, then I'm playtime dad. Then it's time to go to bed and I'm loving dad. So I'm the same dad, but I have different expressions, different extensions of what I am. And the Akashic agents are merely expressions and extensions of God's grace. And so whatever needs to be done... They take those administrators, so I refer to them as their administrators. The agents, their administrators. God is pure and absolute love. The administrators and agents and angels are the emissaries that do all the work. And they do that out of complete servitude. All I want to do is serve the Lord, too. We're all servants of the Lord, one way or the other. Can I ask what your take is on spirit guides? Sure. I think we've been talking about them. Uh Well, I mean, again... You form a very personal, intimate relationship with your Akashic agents, associates, administrators, whatever you want to call them, angels, whatever you want to call them. They're all synonyms. The only thing that I would ever maybe disagree with or have a contradiction with other people's, you could say, common perceptions is that these relationships, they are, again, very personal and intimate. They're just for you, but they're also 
for everybody. So you have a guru, I have a guru, whether you've met them yet or not, or whether you remember them or not, they've been with you since eternity. They always have been and they always will be. They never leave you. They're as close to you as you are now. That's the quote from Be Here Now from Ram Dass. Your guru is as close to you as you are now and always has been. And that's comforting. The only difference is, again, that it isn't just that that guru or spiritual master or angel exists just for you. They may be administering to thousands, countless souls and spirits, but they can. See, I can only think and feel one thing at a time because I'm a limited, stupid human. But they are omniscient and they can multicast like crazy. The only contradiction that I would say is, again, I sometimes meet some zealots that are insistent that their God is the only God. It's either the Christian thing or this, that, or that. I'm not, I'm not trying to destroy on career. I've been using them kind of a loose reference because they can be some zealots in that particular sect. But, you know, again, that the spiritual phenomena takes on whatever persona, whatever flavor, whatever color, whatever image suits for you to make you feel safe and get your knowledge and get things going on and progress on your soul's journey. They don't really care how you come to God, as long as you do. And the bottom line is, whether it's a rock, a stone, Mohammed, or Jesus, all that matters is that you do it with love. Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. And you're right. Whatever keeps us from being distracted or uncomfortable so that we can continue on our soul's journey, and they are so malleable and able to come to us in whatever they know we need. I think that that's fantastic. So I am curious because you mentioned how you used to teach intuition and what you know intuition to be now. What are some other things or revelations, I suppose, or transformations did you have from prior to having your NDE to after? As I met NDE years, and remember, again, by year four of my NDE, I never even heard the term NDE before. I'm in it. I'm having it. I never even heard the phrase before. So around year four, so I'm starting to re-meet all these NDEs. I'm reading books, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, there's a whole community. There's a whole culture out there. And I had no idea. And I was led to it. I was made to wait for a while for a reason. Again, these NDE stories, I'm like, okay, I know why you had to die, because you were a completely faithless, human, materialistic person. And many of them will get up and speak about the fact that they were selfish and corporate and nothing spiritual about them at all. And then they had their NDE, and suddenly they saw the light of God, and it's changed them. And again, I'm wondering, okay, so you're born again, so what about me? And so I struggled out for a while. I'm wondering, so what is it that I didn't know before that I'm getting out of this? Why is this happening to me? I mean, I'm going through hell here. This guy was dead for like two seconds. He went back to his life the next day. And I'm like injured and dead. I learned how to walk, learn how to talk. I lost the love of my life. I mean, it was terrible. I kept looking for what is the new takeaway from this event that I didn't have before. And here's the honest truth, and I hope it doesn't make me sound arrogant. I didn't learn anything new, Laura. Everything I already knew was validated, confirmed, and risen to another octave. So nothing new was added because my spiritual life was pretty complete. I had authentic knowledge when studying. When I say Kabbalah and Tarot, and I lecture and teach on it, I teach the origin and history. I mean the authentic, real, underground stream one. whole chapter in the book called Underground Stream. I don't know if you know that term. In the mystical community, that's a term we use. When you're in mystical groups, we throw that term around very loosely. It refers to the true, authentic thread of knowledge and history that's untainted and unchanged by politics and agendas of people. So the true origins of religion and mystical paths and how they got to where they are. 
what I already had from studying my entire life. I was never settled with anything but the truth. I kept going down the rabbit holes of spirituality until I found the truth. And I kept going until I hit the dead end. And it wasn't a dead end like, okay, there's nowhere to find. It was there's nowhere to find because there's anything beyond it. I found its origin. I mean, eventually you split that out there. Eventually you're going to get down to the, to the cork. You're going to get down to the mill and you're going to get to the end of the boson. There's nothing left to get. Strength theory. And so what I got from the NDE over these years, and as I've started to come out from the fog of it, is I didn't need any more assurance that everything I knew and was given and learned spirituality and dedicated my life to was correct. But having it validated in such a way, I can just say it, raise it to another octave. I don't think I'm special. I have never thought that, and I don't think I am. I think I'm willing. And I'll tell you, that's a very private conversation I had once. It's coming up, so I'm going to share it with you. With an Akashic agent, when I was saying, why me? I'm nobody. Why am I giving such a unique set of experiences and all this profound knowledge? Why me? And the answer was, what do you care? And I'll tell you, it was the most beautiful, comforting thing I'd ever heard in my life because it was just, what does it matter? Just take it. Just enjoy it. Just appreciate it. Just be grateful. And it's all about gratitude and the grace. And so what it changed for me was it stripped away the material attachments, the few that I had, that could have potentially prevented me from pure true and total enlightenment and spiritual, what we call realization with a capital R. Realization is when you become one with the Godhead. You don't become God. You become one with. And so this is taught through the Vedas and through the Sanskrit texts for millennia. And the whole point of yoga, yoga, all the eight paths, Ashtanga yoga, all the points of alchemy that I'm a master of. I have a master's certificate from Fulmel College from Ceremony magic. I'm a third degree magician from the OTO. Every path and every religion speak of one true thing. And so did the religion. And so did Jesus, one of the Yeshua, one of the greatest gurus that ever walked this planet. And it was simply that you can become one with God's love. Get your ego and yourself out of the way. And you do these things and you surrender your will and your mind and let that go. And let your material attachments and your desires go. And the Buddha said the Four Noble Truths. The first one is we desire. We are desiring machines and desiring suffering. And that's what it all is about our desires. And so what my ultimate near-death experience, my death event, and the chain of events that unfolded over seven years was it wrenched me and Mm. stripped away my material attachments so that I could be more liberated spiritually, and I don't know, apply more to that, teach what I know. I don't really know. I don't care, whatever they want. There's a chapter in the book when I talk about the losses. The losses are going on through the whole book. But at some point, when you get towards a full circle, one of the titles is called Bhakti Shakti Pot. Bhakti Shakti Pot is like when you get like a divine power that put into your head. But it's also called disposable items because it was in these meditations that I had these profound awarenesses that everything I lost were disposable items. People, romantic love, all those things we cherish and that we all live for, they're just disposable items. They're not eternal. They're not infinite. They're just material. They're profound and they're beautiful and they're gorgeous and you should appreciate the blessings of them. But the bottom line is they're not God. They're not spiritual. They're still material. 
And so they're ultimately disposable items and we got to let them go if we want to raise up to the next levels. And I was kind of forced to. But listen, I resisted. I wasn't like, okay, yeah, take it. I was like, no, no. I tried to keep everything together for as long as I could. I thought that was my job. I thought I was supposed to do that. So I did what I thought was best. It wasn't until I finally realized, no, dummy, you're not supposed to hold on to these things anymore. Then I was able to let go. Until then, I thought I was supposed to keep it all together. Our material attachments are what prevent us from pure, true spiritual consciousness. And our material attachments are everything from our money and our possessions, which we all know of, but also our romantic love, our family, everything that's in the material phenomena is a material attachment. And ultimately they bind us. And whatever we're bound to is where we're going. What you see, what I had within the portal, what a lot of this book is about, my next book is completely about, is you get your life review and life preview. Now, if you've seen so many things, you've heard of these terms before. Almost everyone remembers life review, the life passing before your eyes and all that kind of thing. But very few people remember, and we all get it, the life preview, where you see where your life can go based on some of the choices where you were going and how you can change things, where it could go. And if you want to continue with a material way of life or do you want to continue with a spiritual life? When you've come back to your body, you have a choice. It's not predetermined. You can choose with free will. Do you want to live a spiritual life or a material life? And you're shown, just like you're shown past lives and through the passing of your life in a moment, you're also shown a preview, but very few people remember it, that you can see what will take place in the future, what you're destined to occur if you do these things versus those things. You can see both outcomes and you can choose. You have free will. That's what God endows us with his free will because God wants us to come to her with pure love and of our own free will. Did you get to see your life preview? Yes. So my life review. So this is a cool thing that's in this book and what's coming up in the next book. Here's the difference between mine and many other NDE experiences. And again, we theorize it's because of my prior mystical training that I was already proficient in in all these things. I wasn't struggling to believe in God and reincarnation, all that. I was already a student quasi master of it. And so my life preview, I didn't just see my life pass before my eyes. I saw multiple lifetimes, Mm. thousands of of years. Now, again, it's like instant upload. I saw it in an instant and yet you see it like a story. So it's not like a movie. I was given the opportunity for the life preview. I basically was saying, I don't want to see just every life. I want to see the only lives that matter in my soul's journey to enlightenment the ones that I was making spiritual progress and the ones where I screwed up and went backwards so I know how to fix it. So I saw thousands of lives in life preview of lifetimes of where I did it right and where I did it wrong to continue and progress on my soul's journey. Do you think this is your last life? Hope so. We can never <laughs> Thank know you're on your way there. Well, yeah. the bottom line is this. As the Buddha taught, as the Acharyas teach, as the Eastern Path Spirituality teach, you can't just die and go to heaven. Clearly, there's a lot of people that are unqualified to just like go to eternal bliss. I mean, I know I'm not qualified for that. I'm not that good. If people like me and common people that I meet here are up in heaven and all that, I'm like, well, I don't want to go. I'll just stay down here. It's cool. At least I got some cold beer here. <laughs> all the Acharyas and true spiritual masters, and Christ taught it too. They just changed it for a different agenda. He taught it too, which was complete and total surrender. And to live the right life, to live properly, to live ethically, morally, spiritually, Dharma, by living dharmically, doing what is correct and living righteously as you can. And if you can complete this journey, and it doesn't matter if you live an evil life, if in your final moments you have complete and total, not 99.999999, but 100 
100% surrender to the Godhead with all your love and all your heart and mind, 100%, then you're done. No more reincarnation. That's been taught through the ages of the Eastern paths since the beginning of time. The Buddhists, the Hindus, the Sanatana and Dharmas, they all teach the exact same thing to get off the wheel of life. Again, tarot, all the mystical modalities, alchemy, all of them, Kabbalah, they all teach the exact same thing in their own language. And it is about completing the soul's journey, going through all the human condition, and getting to the end of it, and being able to have complete and total surrender. We're preparing for the whole thing. So the reality is the final stage to perfect divine consciousness is you have to be worthy. And the bottom line is we're never going to be worthy because we're stupid humans. I'm never going to be worthy of God. Come on. She is, he is perfect sublimity, perfect love. Doesn't have love, is love, isn't a form of love, is pure, unarmed bliss and love. So I'm never going to be worthy of that. And the catch 22 is when I feel that I truly know in my heart that I'm never going to be good enough. That's when I feel like I'm actually close to being good enough. <laughs> so Christian, where can people get this book when it becomes available and when will it be available? After all this work, and here is the manifestation of it. We are anywhere from four to 10 days of an international release and the book will be available in ebook, print and audio recorded by me with my own voice and my own heart and emotion. And there's tears in there too, because I give you the real deal. So those will all be released somewhere in the next four to 14 days. We've worked our butts off to make this happen. In the meantime, as far as I know, the web engineer and my publicist have already put it up for sale. The ebook is available on the website, withinthePortal.com. It's real simple to remember, withinthePortal.com. That's the whole thing is within the portal. Also, my services, I do some readings and I don't do prognostication. What I do is I offer spiritual healing. I'm not saying physical healing. I'm saying what I offer in my readings with Kabbalah and spiritual triangle, this conglomeration, the synthesis of these mystical modalities all combined together. They're profound. It goes to the website. It'll blow your mind. All these things connect together. And so what I offer these services, it's not about what's going to happen to you, some kind of prophecy. It's about how to progress on your soul's journey, how to develop. And that's why, again, I refer to myself often as a spiritual fitness trainer. I'm not a guru. I'm not a master. I'm just a person. What I do offer is spiritual fitness training to help you get in shape spiritually. So that's on the website, withintheportal.com. The book's coming out anywhere from four to 14 days. I got to go back to the editor and the printer and say they got a couple of fixes they got to do. And other than that, we're good to go. Awesome. So we're looking at mid-June. It should come out. Sounds like the website's the way to get in touch with you. And I will have all that information in the show notes as well. So easily clickable and copy and pasteable for the listeners who are interested. Awesome. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. Let me offer your listeners an offer. If they order the ebook, the first 20 or so that order the ebook, if they use in their email, Portal 93, okay? That'll be the code. Portal 93, and I don't know what much, I don't even know how much it's, it's on sale now for, but they'll get a reduced amount. So it's, they'll get like a $12 copy instead of like the 15 or whatever it is, okay? And that's for your listeners only. They got including their transmission. Portal 93. 93 is a mystical number for agape, which is love. Love it. Okay, yes. We'll make sure to include this in the episode as well. So I did want to ask, because I know we could talk for hours and there's so many other things that 
I would love to talk to you about, but (laughs) we'll have to save it for another time. But to help wrap up our interview today, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if the Akashic agents had a timeless message for the listener for the time that they hear this episode. And it may not be as dramatic as a lot of people want it to be. They want lottery numbers or some (laughs) kind of prophecy. The final chapter of this book is called Prophecy. And I say right in the beginning, this is not some Nostradamus prophetic, some charlatan, naysay, whatever. It's nothing like that. This prophecy is for me. I'm sharing you with whether this is going in my story. I don't know about the world. (laughs) Sure. The truth is simple. You know when you see it. Continue to sail the underground stream and sail for nothing but truth, pure truth. And if you don't know the difference, that's okay. If you just in your heart refuse to sell for anything else, then God will make sure that you only get the truth and you'll be able to see the difference. So I can distill that message to something rather simple. The future is obscure. The past is bygone. You have this present moment to dedicate your life to God realization and spiritual understanding. The eternal present. Don't waste it. Don't wait until you die and get a coma and brain trauma to figure out that you need to dedicate your existence to spiritual awareness and realization. Because if you don't, then you keep coming back on the never-ending eternal cycle of life and death. Life is eternal. The soul is eternal. You don't get to choose when you come back and when you don't. It's your karmas that bind you. You're going to create material karmas or spiritual karmas. That's your only choice. Make the right choice. Well, Krishnanan, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story and your knowledge and your truth. I really appreciate you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. You've been a terrific woman to talk to. I appreciate it. And that was another episode of A Guided Life Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, love and light always. for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.